This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance Tene. On tonight's show, Sonia Sly is going beyond face value with a story about reshaping our thinking around the dynamics of diversity. Thousands have uh, protested in cities across Australia to call for rehousing of refugees on Manus Island. Two men who just dared cross into America. down the library, people holding tight to their wallets and stuff. God, what's her name? Dick shit. <laughs> Dick shit. How do we see ourselves? What do we see as threats? What values do we hold on to and why? And how is our personality informed or shaped by our environment? I'm Sonia Sly for this episode of Our Changing World. And yes, these are big questions. As New Zealand's multicultural population continues to grow and news coverage shows countries in a state of unrest, back home we're faced with questions about how to deal with new migrants and refugees, how to move beyond token acknowledgement of those from other cultures in a way that doesn't veer into institutionalised racism. So I've decided to explore some of these questions and where we could tweak some areas, but also where things might be going wrong. First up... My name's Ron Fisher. I'm a professor in the School of Psychology here at Victoria and I'm running a lab on culture, evolution and the human mind. Which is huge. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've often thought how lucky we are to live in a country desirable for its natural features. New Zealand has been largely untouched and despite some of the downsides of our isolation, it's a benefit too. The environment in New Zealand, the the natural environment, is not as challenging it's a much more pleasant, you know, just geographically speaking, um, ecologically speaking. And so, you know, like you don't face the same kind of climatic ecological pressures, which also then, you know, like doesn't lead to so much competition. Which means New Zealand could easily be seen as a land of opportunity. The release of physical and environmental threats, which contributes to our laid back Kiwi attitude. Ronald has recently published a book, Personality, Values, Culture and Evolutionary Perspective. And what I want to know is whether personality and identity are one and the same thing, you know, from a scientific point of view. The way I look at it is typically from a psychological perspective. So looking at how we typically would behave across situations, which is a definition of personality, the things that we hold important for us in our lives. International research shows us that values and personality do not actually differ that much as we often perceive because what we look at when we see people is the way they dress, the way they talk, what they eat. 
that often has very little to do with the specific values that people hold dear to their lives and their personality traits. Right, it's really interesting. So in terms of personality, because I would have thought that how you perceive yourself and what you identify with also becomes part of your personality. Yes and no. Um, You're certainly right that these kind of identities, you you know, like social attitudes are linked to values and traits, right? So there is some connection. That's absolutely right. And we can identify certain parts of the brain, certain, you know, brain mechanisms that regulate both our personality traits, our values, and also some of those social attitudes. At the same time, though, those social attitudes are also, you know, shaped a lot by our social environment, the things we learn in school, the interactions that you have in in your workplace, etc., etc. So why do we struggle to understand others and their needs? Is it fear? Are we wired differently? If we look into the neuroscience literature, there are some brain mechanisms and neural pathways that allow us to understand how values and personality actually are constructed and develop and change over our lifetime. We are either oriented towards approaching new situations or we try and avoid new situations on one hand a second neural pathway or you know like major dimension that people have talked about is whether you trust people at face value so you are quite open trusting or whether we focus purely on economic exchange and any economic benefits they might have for us so these are kind of two major abstract biologically inspired uh, dimensions these two dimensions really interact with each other and with the environment to give rise to all these different value and personality facets that we can observe and also study in psychology. And what is really fascinating Now it probably comes as no surprise to you that family life has a lot to do with shaping our values and our personality. So the economic opportunities that families have, how parents interact with their children, the experiences that we have in our schools... And then also, of course, very importantly, the experiences that we have as we leave school and enter into the workplace really determine how our values and personality develops and is expressed. So it's really from a very basic biological level that interacts with all the kind of rich social experiences that we have that gives rise to these really diverse personalities and, and, and values that we, that we encounter in, in day-to-day life. Our personality develops even further as we transition from school into the workplace, which means we really need to think carefully about the organisations we want to work for and why some employment settings never feel quite right. What research shows us is that actually the transition from schools to workplaces is very, very important for how we develop as as individuals and what kind of personalities we develop, what kind of values we cherish. I think that's also probably one of the major challenges for New Zealanders as we have more and more people coming from overseas that have had different employment experiences, different schooling experiences to understand you know, like how they see the world, how they feel motivated, what they kind of strive for, and then integrating them effectively into the workplace and providing the opportunities for them to actually grow. Our education institutions try and embrace other cultures, but how do our values adapt when we're faced with difference? 
raises the stakes for organizations. On one hand, to really understand who these individuals are that enter into the workplace, but also because organizations set the social environment for people working there. If we think about just approach avoidance and, you know, like trust versus more kind of economically driven exchange orientations, if you enter into a workplace where you give them opportunities, people trust you, you develop into a quite a different person compared to entering an organization where everything is just basically focused on money, uh, economic exchange, and, you know, like you're told to better focus on avoiding errors and, and making sure you perform to very tightly controlled job descriptions. When um, an organization is looking to employ new members, are they looking for someone who already fits a personality profile you know, within the culture of the environment, or, or does an individual gravitate to something which they feel is going to be a natural fit for them? Yes, absolutely. As the work environment is changing, these challenges become, you know, larger and larger. There is a lot of research that suggests that there is a mutual sending out. Employers obviously look for people that fit into the environment of the organization, and employees also look at what... I thrive in this particular organization. At the same time, though, with all these rapid changes with technology, with rapid demographic changes around the world, political changes, etc., etc., there's a lot of scope for steering organizations into a direction that is welcoming and open towards diversity. But it's probably less about ethnic cultural differences, but more about social cultural differences that we actually create in our like national environment and i think that is the both the opportunity and the challenge it's definitely food for thought and a bit of a gear shift i think for all of us to focus on the social aspects of how we communicate rather than the ethnic cultural differences which often becomes a default right And this is where I want to get another perspective, because the kind of thinking that veers into the territory of them and us doesn't always happen between cultures, but between rural and urban settings. So let's find out more. Hi, are you Rita? Yes. Hi, I'm Sonia. Thanks. Let's have a sit down. My actual sort of section of psychology is cultural, which means that I focus more specifically on how particular cultural forms change the way that people see the world. Meet Dr. Rita McNamara from the School of Psychology at Victoria University. Uh, Where cross-cultural psychology will tend to look for broad similarities or differences across many different groups. My work is primarily with uh, small communities in rural Fiji. And so I look at how, you know, their more traditional ways of seeing, uh, setting up society or like thinking about relationships influences the way that they might make social decisions. And what Rita's discovered through her research is that the thinking process differs between people in rural and urban environments. But how much? What seems to be happening is when people are in this group where they know people for many years, many generations, um, they might be more likely to reference the things that's going on in the environment rather than try to think about like what's going on in people's heads. Uh, and so it's sort of like a different set of focuses. It almost seems opposite to watch. In a Western society, what you might generally yes, think. Yes, that does seem to be the opposite of the sort of canon of what we think about how people work in 
sort of like big cities like uh, New York or smaller cities like Wellington. Where I'm going with this research is to see if this is, in fact, a difference in the way that minds work, which I don't think is the case, or if it's more sort of like a difference in how people focus on solving problems. Like in a smaller community, and it's kind of possibly quite isolated, the environment is about their survival. That's part of the situation that I'm looking at, and this is especially true for places, again, more rural, or places where people are more reliant on traditional knowledge. More like the city, urban, urban environment, there's just more sort of like open questions, and so the information space is a little bit different. So how could your research, I guess, relate to what's happening here and, you know, like how New Zealand is dealing with its increasing multiculturalism and how it sort of sees itself as, I guess, the obligation towards biculturalism, yet it's an increasingly multifaceted, multicultural environment, and how does that then shape the community within it? Right. So for the broader sort of multicultural, bicultural setting in New Zealand. Uh, What my work can potentially give to that is this understanding that there's not just one form of psychology that we've gotten from the West. And so if we sort of step back a moment and look and see how different people are responding to different environments with these different sort of cultural frameworks, we can then build a broader picture of how there are equally good solutions to these problems and sort of figure out what are ways that we can look for supports to these different solutions that are amenable to everyone and do it in maybe a more principled way rather than just sort of following what has always been done. And one of the biggest struggles that come into play when addressing culture is... We don't realise we have a culture until we step out of it and see how different things are in other places. In terms of the research that you've done in Fiji, what kind of things have been illuminated to you about the differences and how we might, in an urban environment think compared to those who were growing up, you know, fairly isolated? I have the benefit of having grown up in a fairly rural setting myself. So I already sort of had that transition into the city in my own life. Uh, But when I first went out to the villages, I had this sort of humbling moment where I realized that I was dumber than a two-year-old, even though I was, you know, this post-grad student and I'd been smart my whole life. Now I knew nothing. So that sort of shift in focus and realizing that I am now more, more of a student even than little children uh, was an important sort of first step in stepping into this new environment. So when addressing diversity, maybe what we really need to do is to take a step back, make a concerted effort to really see people and situations with fresh eyes. People in these villages tend to focus on setting up space and setting up interactions around different kin groups. And I hadn't actually seen that in the way that it is even physically laid out in the village until I had done that project and actually spent a lot of time talking to people about their kinship relationships and how they make decisions about, like, sharing food or sharing time. And then as soon as I started paying attention to that, it just, like, snapped into focus for me. So this process of being in the villages and talking to people and then beginning to see more and more how they see the world uh, has been a sort of a face shift in doing my own research. And then when I go back to my own hometown, I suddenly start seeing how the space is laid out with that kinship relationship as well. So you're talking about a physical, the way it's physically laid out? Exactly, like how people decide where to put their houses and where they spend the majority of their physical time during the day. Say we have two big family groups in one village. Uh, maybe the patriarch is set on the north side of the village, and then his children will be sort of radiating around in that sort of northern part of the village. And then there will be another patriarch from the other 
group, maybe on the south side of the village. And then his relationships will be mostly around that area. And so they still might interact uh, across those two groups for big functions throughout the village, but the majority of day-to-day interactions are within their, their sort of like broader family groups. How does that compare to you back home then, <laughs> when you think about it? Right, so um, my hometown was primarily Irish Catholic and Irish, or sorry, Polish Catholic. And so everyone eventually ends up being related to everyone. But the Irish half of town was where my family was. And then the Polish half was on the other half, part of town. And so I didn't notice this until, again, I had done this research project. I was like, oh, there's a reason why all of my family are over here and all of my distant cousins are over on the other side of the town. How did that make you feel? There's this thing that happens in anthropology where we have a tendency to want to see people from distant places as very other. And that was one of the first moments, or one of the really key moments, where I see that people are just people everywhere, right? Did you get that? People are just people. Like, there's not that much difference, even though people are on the other side of the world and they have these completely different histories. There's this great commonality in a lot of places. But, I mean, the first thing that strikes me is that there's this unconscious kind of divide. If there would be potentially a a fracturing point in that small town where I came from, that might be one of the fracturing points. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely part of the history. Before it was okay to marry across different nationality lines, you know, the Polish Catholics would marry with the Polish Catholics and the Irish Catholics would marry with Irish Catholics. Um, but that had stopped being a line long before I was born. So maybe it's just the way that history is written into the space. So do you think in New Zealand then, I mean, is there a de-emphasis on family or do we just see sort of family and other aspects of our life completely separate, you know, different? I wouldn't necessarily say it's a New Zealand thing so much as it's a city rural thing. So when you're further away from family groups, it's much easier to move as an independent agent. Uh, And so in the city, you're much more likely to do that. My experience with people who've lived in New Zealand for many, many generations, they're still relatively focused on family. And that's even more so for Maori families, who, of course, need to be aware of their whanau and aware of their relationships around that uh, core. Mr. Masuhisu Matsumoto. Matsumoto. Moto. Kwong Hin says he'd have more chance of getting a job if his name is John, because New Zealand employers are racist. Okay, so I even changed my own surname when I got married because it meant I could somehow distance myself from my Chinese identity and the weight of the negative connotations or stereotypes about what it meant for me to be Asian in a predominantly white society. I mean, even little things like being put in the top maths class as a kid because I was Chinese, not because I was actually good at maths. In fact, I was terrible. I was born here, but do others see me as Kiwi? I'm not so sure. And this is where Simon Zhu comes in. He's a 1.5 generation Chinese New Zealander. So I want to talk to him about what diversity means and why it's a point of tension, particularly for Asian migrants. So we meet up on Auckland's bustling Queen Street to discuss his postgrad research into Asian identity in the workplace. And I want to find out more about the impacts of what it means to be judged at face value. You know, when I when you talk about the education structure, Asians um, that I've talked to, I think they fit in quite well. But when it comes to employment, that transition from being a student to an employee, they find it quite difficult because it's not 
that passive anymore. Um, it's not about you know taking notes and listening to a lecturer and then learning something and doing exams. It's it's more interpersonal. You have to learn how to interact with people on a more social level. A lot of diversity is about meeting a criteria, like meeting a number. You know, I have to have this many of the certain employees. So it's not actually the utilization of the benefits of having diversity and how actually having people of different cultures can contribute to the organization. At the same time, when they do hire diverse range of employees, some have found that they have to assimilate rather than integrate. They've had to keep their skin color but adjust to the existing company culture rather than yeah, so everyone does, but the problem that a lot of the research I looked at found was the sort of different standards and expectations set for uh, migrants and people of the dominant group. There's a stereotype for Asian uh, engineers, for example. They're not field work sort of fit. Say, for example, an older white male enters the field. There's a stereotype where he's quite capable. He's able to get the work done, whereas a lot of Asian employees feel like they have to prove themselves. They have to show that they are actually able to do this. So is that experience real or is it paranoia? Migrants do feel this paranoia where they shouldn't, even if there might not be this sort of stereotypical marginalisation of Asian migrants. For all the people I've interviewed to feel this way, I think there's something there that is worth looking into. Asian community, you know, or ethnic groups are kind of perceived also as being a little bit more reserved and I wonder if that compounds the problem or reinforces their feeling that they need to maintain that perception of themselves, that they are reserved and quiet and just sit and get on with the work. That's a really interesting point that you bring up with a they are like that within their own communities. Sometimes when they're out there working, they have to put up a different image of themselves. Even though, you know, in, in theory, as research has shown that most New Zealanders prefer integration, they like having, having their own culture. And both um, New Zealanders here, they like having multicultural communities. But in practice, there seems to be a lot of uh, assimilation going on where people are feeling like they need to try and change their cultural identity or ethnic identity to fit in with an organisation or culture. Some of the participants I talked to, they mentioned how they would have to, for example, speak more clearly when they're speaking English to show that they can speak English. Or Do you feel that yourself? Yeah, sometimes. Really? Yeah. What situations? Like, for example, if I'm giving a presentation, that sort of internal pressure, you could maybe attribute it to individual people but if enough people are sort of feeling this way there might be something there worth looking into that sort of having to become more Kiwi is to me feels like a sign of like they feel a pressure of assimilation yeah like an example with that with one of my participants is for example their company uh, activities you know sometimes they have team building activities for example and they found that some of the Asian employees are more reluctant to participate and you know he, he mentioned how this might be due to sort of the activities they chose for example he mentioned paintball you know it's fun like I enjoy it but not everyone that's not sort of everyone's thing like that sort of you know a lot of Asian people might not like paintball as an organization but help for them to play more migrant specific 
activities for team building. Marginalize. Yeah, you don't want to marginalize. Like, as in, you, everyone does it together, like as a whole company, for example. But you, you know, sort of do everything, not just the things that some people would like. Yeah. One of Simon's research participants was working for one of Auckland's largest department stores at the time. Their colleagues are friendly and stuff, but at times they feel isolated or tokenized because they look different and they feel like they're treated differently. People of a dominant group would stick together and hang out by themselves, share certain privileges that she felt like she couldn't access. Maybe it's a subjective thing. Like sometimes the manager, because she is of a certain ethnicity, she'd be more likely to treat her people like herself nicer. I'm 1.5 generation, so I came here quite young, but I came with my parents. People like myself have had the benefit of being able to go to school here, become fluent in English, and we have the assumption that it should be all right. Like, we consider ourselves as Kiwi, but when it comes to employment, I think not everyone is as lucky they're not necessarily treated as a Kiwi despite having grown up here. Hold that thought for just a minute and think about the cultural makeup of your own workplace. In his study, identical CVs were sent out, but each time the name of the applicant was changed. And what Simon discovered was that applicants with Asian names were... Much less likely to get a callback from potential employers than, say, a typical uh, European name. So that's why a lot of Asian migrants tend to anglicise their name. I've changed my name to Simon, you know, even though on my passport it doesn't say that, but everywhere I go, on my CVs, so Zhu Xi is my full Chinese name. Even before coming here, I think my parents, they were anticipating having to give up some of their cultural identity, so they gave me an English name. You know, one of the participants, her friend changed her own surname as a Chinese person, I think that's quite extreme, considering you know we're quite family-oriented and our last name bears quite a bit of weight in our lives. She shouldn't have to have done that. What extreme measures would you take to land a job? What's apparent through Simon's research, along with Rita and Ronald's, is an emphasis on family. It ties us to our sense of who we are, with our environment informing who we become. An increasing emphasis on diversity inadvertently makes us look more closely at ourselves and how we see others. And in the workplace, it can create areas of tension. But instead of magnifying the differences, maybe we should focus on our commonalities as human beings so that it's less about culture and more about how we communicate, giving everyone the opportunity to express their unique set of values and ideas. Because we all see the world through a slightly different lens, neither being right or wrong. Often we are just concerned with ourselves or our own smaller communities and we forget that in New Zealand... We are a multicultural society and we do need to look out for one another and we need to sort of help everyone fit in better and it starts with being aware of it and talking about it. I'm Sonia Sly, presenter and producer of this episode of Our Changing World. You also heard Dr Ronald Fisher, Dr Rita McNamara and Simon Jew. I'm Alison Balance, and this Our Changing World podcast first aired on RNZ National on the 22nd of February 2018. 
If you'd like to listen to that story again or find others, and there are plenty to choose from, just head to rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. We are available from Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, as well as Spotify, Stitcher and Radio Public. Look out for us on Twitter and Facebook where we are RNZ Science. Now, RNZ produces pots of podcasts on everything from parenting to sex and drugs. Check them out on the RNZ app or on the podcasts and series page at rnz.co.nz. Thanks for listening right through to the end, but I think I'll stop now. Bye for now. Kiupaitopo. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.